Coming up on Tech Nation, do you like the idea of replacing some of your DNA with DNA that works better? And what if you want that DNA to stop? Mira GTX is working on that and more. Dr. Alexandria Forbes, its president and CEO, tells us about their work in retinitis pigmentosa and Parkinson's, two of the many clinical trials they are enrolling right now. Then, it's time we talked about the metaverse. Matthew Ball, the former global head of strategy for Amazon Studios, talks about his book, The Metaverse, and how it will revolutionize everything. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2016, I was able to speak with the founding executive editor of Wired magazine, Kevin Kelly, about his book, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. So I asked Kevin, 12 technological forces, not 10, not three, but 12? It's an arbitrary number. These are umbrella categories that I put a lot of related things together. There could have been 11, there could have been 15. It's not really that important. The idea is that there's handfuls. There's there's a dozen or so long-term trends that you could think of as long-term trajectories in technology. As you read the book, you get the sense that these technologies are not stopping. They're moving forward. They actually act like forces. Yes, sense. right. It's a force uh, or, or an urgency like gravity, right? I mean, so, so this is what the word inevitable means. It's it's going downhill whether we want it to or not. There's a force there. But it's a, it's a kind of a, a bias or leaning. And therefore, when you're working against it, you're kind of like going uphill, so to speak. And a lot of people are working against it. Um, the music industry, for instance, worked against one of these trends for years and years because the Internet is the world's largest copy machine. <laughs> yeah. Anything that can be copied, <laughs> it touches the Internet, it will be copied. Yeah. And so you can't stop the copying. That's inevitable. It's just going to copy more and more. And so the music industry was copy protection and outlawing this and prohibiting that kind of stuff. It doesn't work because they were going against the grain. There was a gravity towards more copying. And so it took them 30 years to kind of beginning to accept the fact that they can't stop the copying. So the kinds of forces I'm talking about are inevitable and large scale like that, in that similar sense that there's kind of a gravity to them. And they they interact. They're codependent, you say. And you could see how many times they need each other to be... A fulfillment of right. what their potential is. Right. So so this one of the trends, one of the forces is this idea that we're kind of moving to these ubiquitous screens that are everywhere where where everything is more liquid and, and fleeting and ephemeral and flowing. That unlike a book, which I just wrote, called The Inevitable, <laughs> which is Do I have one of the paper copies? <laughs> exactly. Which is fixed, finished. Monumental in a certain sense, it's it's, it's impermanent. It's, it's I mean, it's permanent, and, and 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 so it doesn't change. Whereas on the screen, everything is fluid, moving, flowing. We stream our music, we stream our movies, we stream up, you know, Facebook updates. All this kind of stuff is flowing. It's never finished. It's always in progress. It's being updated, and that 
is a different culture, really. Um, and that's also dependent on these other things like flowing and, and intermixing and remixing. So there is a sense in which this is kind of an ecosystem of different forces. And they're all kind of codependent upon each other. And one of the big innovations, I would say, in some senses, starting with the written language, which was this ability to... Um, Reread something to 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 scroll back. I mean, we don't we don't we we kind of scroll back when we're reading and we read again. Well, we've moved that ability to kind of go back into movies, moving images, sound, and more and more of our lives where we can kind of scroll back and rewind it. And that ability turns out to be really really fundamental. And one of the reasons why commercials are now seen as an art form is because you can watch them anytime you want, rewind them, watch them over and over again, and things like the GIF, the GIF loop, where you take some little moment and you just replay it again and again, you, you are able to study it and it kind of transcends itself. And so that is another aspect of the streaming, which we can actually stop and rewind, which is this magical thing that we only recently invented. Kevin Kelly continues in his futurist and ecological work. His 2016 book, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future, is available on Amazon. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, let's say we were born with a malfunctioning gene. How about adding some new DNA? And what if you don't want the DNA you added to function anymore? Mira GTX has been working on both. I speak with Dr. Zandi Forbes, its president and CEO. We go into depth on retinitis pigmentosa and Parkinson's, just two of their programs. Then it's all about the metaverse. Matthew Ball, the former global head of strategy for Amazon Studios, joins me to talk about his book, The Metaverse, and how it will revolutionize everything. Well, not totally everything, but a whole bunch. Let me just say that. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now Zandi. That would be Dr. Alexandria Forbes. Zandi, welcome to Biotech Nation. Thank you, Moira. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I think in general, we can all understand that we're beginning to have the technology to engineer DNA gene sequences, which, when in our bodies, will produce a protein that does something. It could be a, a working protein, which replaces a defective one, or it could be a protein, which is essentially a drug, which treats a condition. Now, you've been working on this in a number of disease conditions, and your first area of focus was in the eye. And uh, several of your conditions are inherited and others are age-related, such as wet 
macular degeneration. And while everyone is always interested in the results of aging, since we're all aging, I'm going to ask you about the inherited eye diseases because Johnson & Johnson, one of the largest pharmaceutical and medical device companies in the world, they've partnered with you and they're partnering with you for all inherited eye diseases, some of the ones you haven't even seen yet. Oh, we want them, all the inherited eye diseases. So this tells me you're, you're on to something here. Let's talk about your most advanced uh, treatment in the inherited eye disease area, which is now entering phase three, uh, the last of the phase one, two, three clinical trials before approval. And that's RPGR, retinitis pigmentosa. What is that? So retinitis pigmentosa, as you mentioned, is an inherited disease. It is found in men. It's X-linked. And it results in irreversible blindness that occurs gradually over the life of these young men. So when they're in their early teens to mid-20s, they start not being able to see in the dark, then in dimmer light, and then gradually their vision disappears from the outside in. They get tunnel vision, and by the time they're in their 30s or 40s, they tend to go completely blind. So, There's nothing you can do about this disease. They lack one particular functioning gene. And our treatment in collaboration with Johnson & Johnson, as you said, replaces that missing gene with a good copy that then makes the protein that otherwise missing prevents them from seeing. Now, you're entering phase three, the last phase, as I said, but let's go back to phase two. How many subjects did you test? What did, how, for how long? What did they go through? Tell us about that. So the study overall treated 45 uh, subjects, and this was initially a dose-finding study. So we tried a number of doses, and it was then the primary purpose of this study was to see how safe this treatment was. So all the people treated were only treated in one eye. And so each patient had one eye treated, the gene, the therapy was injected into the back of that patient's eye, and then they went away and every several months at specific time points, they would come back and have all different measures of their vision assessed. So we could see not only if this was safe, if maybe this treatment in their one eye had actually improved different aspects of vision. And what did you find with the various dosages? So we found that there were two doses out of the three that we tried um, that looked like they benefited Uh, those initial patients, and we expanded. There were only three three and four in each of those dose cohorts. We expanded those doses, so we treated another 10 to 13 patients in each of those two doses, 
And when we looked at the data, which we released uh, in the last week, we were able to show that at least in this initial study, there seemed to be benefit in multiple aspects of those patients' vision. I mentioned that these men, they're, they're young men, initially have trouble being independent in the, in the dark. And uh, as children, they might start bumping into things in the dark before they go completely blind. And one of the things we saw was that in the patients that had been treated, they seemed to be able to navigate through a maze. We have a maze that assesses how they're able to behave in the dark faster than before they were treated. They reported through questionnaires that they were able to function better in dimly lit conditions. They are in their reports of how they felt they'd been effective. They felt they were more independent. They could go through, you know, museums or they could now continue their work. These sorts of early reports suggest to us that indeed replacing that gene is potentially having a meaningful impact on those patients' lives. And then when we measured the sensitivity of their retina with a machine that shines light on their retina, we also showed that from the perspective of the eye, the retina seemed more sensitive. So all this information together suggests that as we go into the phase three, we have a treatment that may have a benefit in these patients who, who otherwise have no potential treatment. Now, when you say different dosages, are you talking the amount of genes that are, are inserted? What are you talking about? Yes. So when you deliver a gene therapy, you deliver a certain number of genes. So our dose is X number of genes, three times that number of genes, four times that number of genes. So it's, it's the actual number of genes in the solution that you're injecting into their eye. That's what we mean by a dose in gene therapy. Okay, so one of the things I liked about what you were describing is that we often say phase two, as if we give people a number of doses and then we say, oh, here's the outcome. So now we'll just do a lot more in phase three. We'll just give it to more people. There is a succession of tests and you're strategizing and you're looking at outcomes. How did what you learn in phase two affect what you're now going to do in phase three? How is phase three going to be different? So we have very similar groups of patients in phase three. And as such, we anticipate that the, met the treatment will have a similar benefit and we are assessing, um, we're, we're doing assessments in phase three that are very similar to what we did in the phase two. However, we've had discussions with regulatory agencies in the US, all over the world, in Europe, in multiple countries about what they would consider something that would convince the regulatory agencies that this actually has a meaningful benefit to patients. So some of the endpoints, for example, the maze that I mentioned, we've worked on lots of different aspects of that maze, 
in discussion with regulatory agencies to produce an endpoint that really provides you a, a more acceptable way of showing you've had this benefit, a clinically meaningful benefit on these patients. It's all well and good that patients telling you they can see better, but you need to have something that's measurable to, to have a drug that can be approved as safe and effective. And that's what we've done between phase two and phase three. Now, you are enrolling now in phase three. Where in the world are you enrolling and how do people find out about that? So as you mentioned earlier, we are fortunate to be in a collaboration with uh, Johnson & Johnson. And as a result of that collaboration, we actually have quite a large global study. So there are a number of sites in the US. Um, in addition to that, in multiple countries throughout Europe, you will be able to find, if you go to a disease, a center that focuses on inherited retinal diseases, they, if they're not in the study, will be able to direct you to a site where you might be treated. So we have um, multiple studies in the US, multiple studies in Europe, and they gradually open over time the European sites a bit later than the US, but they're currently enrolling. Now let's turn to another disease area you're working in, and that would be neurodegenerative diseases. And uh, I, I'm just going to pick Parkinson's. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot that can be done in Parkinson's. Let's talk about that. Yes. So we do have a gene therapy approach to Parkinson's. And you mentioned that there's not a lot that can be done in Parkinson's. In Parkinson's, it's driven by the loss of a transmitter, neurotransmitter called dopamine. And initially in the disease, you can replace dopamine by pills or other methods to, to give you back dopamine and to help your motor function um, be normal. However, most people, as they progress through the disease, dopamine stops working. And in addition, side effects occur with dopamine. So once dopamine has stopped working, there are very few options. But one of the options that exists is something called deep brain stimulation. And that involves putting a wire into the brain and targeting a tiny, tiny portion in the brain that controls motor behavior. And when you put electricity there, your motor symptoms of Parkinson's fade away. So instead of using a wire and electricity, we do something very similar, but use a gene to impact that same tiny part of the brain that controls motor symptoms. So we inject a gene just into that site in the brain. So there's no wires or electricity. And that gene actually changes the circuitry of that region of the brain and allows motor symptoms to be more normal. Now, would that gene placement be permanent? Yes. So you need one injection into your brain, and that's it. 
and you have this little, it's sort of recircuiting that particular region which is damaged in Parkinson's disease because of the lack of dopamine. So you no longer need that dopamine to have that correct circuitry. Now, is that phase two study enrolling or is it fully enrolled at this point? So we have one phase two study using this particular product, which is completed. And that phase two study showed a benefit which is published against a sham. So someone who didn't get the drug injected but had a surgery. We're in the situation now where we have produced at our own manufacturing facility new gene therapy. It's exactly the same drug, but it's produced in a new facility. And we will be opening a study later this year with that new material. And will that be in the UK, in the US? That will be in the US. That will be in the US. So again... Yes, it's enrolling in U.S. sites later this year. All roads lead to Mira GTX. So start there. <laughs> start looking there. Uh, but you did mention surgery. You have to inject this into the brain. And, and how, how challenging is that surgery? So it's very, very similar to deep brain stimulation. So deep brain stimulation, while it sounds complicated, involves a very well understood surgery where you put a not a helmet but it's a frame and then a needle just goes into this very specific part of the brain which many many surgeons know how to do and then you put a wire in there so that's deep brain stimulation and it's done all over america all over the world quite frequently so we use exactly the same type of surgery all of those deep brain stimulation shirt surgeons know how to do, but rather than putting a wire in, we put a tiny droplet of our gene therapy and then we take the um, catheter out. So there's nothing left, there's no wires. It, it's simply the gene is there and you go home. So it, it's the same surgery, but nothing's left behind except the gene. If you happen to be one of those people with too small a dose, are you able to go in and put more? So we have done a phase two study and that followed a phase one study. And at the moment, we are treating with the dose that was found to be efficacious in the phase two, which was the highest dose. So there, there aren't multiple doses. Can you retreat? There is potential for that in the future. Uh, we have not looked at that so far and are not studying that in this particular study. Now, I have to say that uh, many people say, that's really great. You know, th these are chronic diseases that you have for life. Uh, so this is very good news moving in this direction. Um, However, I think there is uh, a worry, if you will. Why would I put new DNA in my body, you know, permanently? And what if something went wrong? How could I turn it off? Uh, I think some of your next generation research uh, answers that, right? Yes, that's, that's a very interesting question because 
first-generation gene therapies, really, as you pointed out, you put them into the body and they actually hopefully will be active for the rest of life to treat that particular disease. But there are many ways that you could use gene therapy beneficially if you had the ability to control it. So it wasn't on all the time. And we have developed a technology where we put into the gene therapy that you described an extra little uh, sequence. And that little sequence means that our gene therapy is dormant. So it's actually not switched on. And then we can give a pill which targets that extra little sequence. And only when that pill is there, does the gene and the gene therapy switch on. So it's, it's the first time you can really put a gene into the body that isn't active and then take a pill and you make it active at the right dose and the time that you want it. So without the pill, it's not on. And how do you adjust doses? The technology was designed so that the gene responds very precisely to the dose of the pill. So if you want a very small amount of protein, you take a very low dose of the pill. If you want a lot of protein, you take a much higher dose of the pill. So you can really control how much protein your gene makes by deciding what dose of pill you want to take. Now, this is clearly in development now. Where are you in that development? Do you have an initial candidate condition to work on? Where are you? So we have developed this technology independently, and we have got to the stage where we have tested quite a range of drugs so genes that we want to activate in animals. And the types of drugs that we have tested, some of the drugs that are used for diabetes, are uh, some of the drugs like growth hormone or insulin. These are the sorts of drugs that we've tested in animals. Other types of drugs, antibody drugs, so drugs that are used for cancer, or drugs that are used for autoimmune disease. We also are able to control those sorts of drugs in mice using oral pills. So we're able at the moment, at least in mice, to dose those with both antibodies, so cancer drugs, as well as um, smaller hormones and peptides which have to be injected into the body today. Well, Zandi, Dr. Forbes, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back and see us again. I would love to, Maura, and it was a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Alexandria Forbes. Zandi is the president and CEO of Mira GTX. Information about these and their other clinical trials, which are now enrolling, is available on their website, miragtx.com. That's Mira, M-E-I-R-A, 
followed by gtx.com, miragtx.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Individual Biotech Nation podcasts can be found at biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcasts of whole Tech Nation programs continue to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, we hear from Matthew Ball about his book, The Metaverse, and how it will revolutionize everything. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation. Many people had never heard of the metaverse until Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook would be changing its name to Meta Platforms, or Meta for short. The term has actually been around for 30 years or so, even if the definition has somewhat been in flux. Today I speak with Matthew Ball, the author of The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. Well, Matt, welcome to Tech Nation. I'm really excited to be here. Now, I'm trying to figure out how this is possible. You write that Travis Scott, the hip-hop artist, hosted a concert that was attended live by 28 million players with millions more watching live on social media. What are you talking about? It's a great, fun, and inspiring place to start. In April of 2020, the hip-hop artist Travis Scott performed a live concert inside the video game world of Fortnite. As you mentioned, it had 28 million people participating in that experience. They were all looking at the same version of Travis Scott. The results of that were extraordinary, not just as a technical demonstration, His three-year-old album soared to the top of the Billboard charts again. Several of his years old tracks did. He premiered a new track with the famous artist Kid Cudi, who had never had a debut at number one, instantly hit one. And it showed you how you could connect to tens of millions in the depths of the pandemic and connect to so many millions who would otherwise have not just 
not known about you before, but many assumed they didn't like his music. But of course, Billboard shows we did. So he was performing it. When you say inside a game, you had to be, is it Fortnite you said it was? Yes. And Fortnite. And so it was, you had to be one of the players in Fortnite. You had to have logged on, had an account, been a participant there. And then was it a a, a live stream from him performing as if on stage? Is that what they were seeing? What they were seeing was, in this instance, a pre-recorded concert that was then played back live. There have been subsequent events, a Jay Balbin concert on Halloween that was broadcast from a live studio from the artist live. But in this instance, the concert itself was pre-recorded. The experience was live. And then it was being relayed through professional channels. That is to say, a recording that Epic Games, the makers of Fortnite, was producing in real time, as well as live streamers, your Twitch celebrities, who would share that with many millions more just watching on Twitter or Facebook, YouTube. So the whole idea that these games are now channels, media channels, is reality. That's quite right. My favorite way to describe this is to talk about Moore's Law, which reflects that processing power per dollar essentially doubles every two years. And the reason why this is important is because all forms of entertainment benefit in one way, shape, or form from Moore's Law. It impacts the quality of the television that we're watching, the quality of the sound recording. You and I right now are benefiting from Moore's Law. But we talk about gaming riding Moore's Law. And that's because music sounds relatively similar over the past decade. If you watch the most popular films in the world, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the film that premiered today, Thor, not that different from 2008's Iron Man, frankly, not that different from 1977's Superman. Music, tonally different, the instrumentation has evolved, but games are so exposed to Moore's Law that they're radically different, even over a five-year span. And so what you're observing is this point that we in the industry observe as a critical transformation. And I know that's a buzzword, but it's where this relatively niche part of our economy, a small form of human leisure, has gone well beyond its historical trappings, video games, Legend of Zelda, Donkey Kong, Call of Duty, into a cultural platform where hundreds of millions are living out their lives. Hit content is now exposed to brand new audiences and increasingly the technology is being used to run everything from a Land Rover to the Hong Kong International Airport at a multi-billion dollar development project in Tampa. Now, let's go to your last two examples. What do you mean this has anything to do with uh, the Land Rover going to the airport or a multi-million dollar or however many it is, however many dollars it is, development in Tampa? How do we go from so many people inside a game actually together at the same time watching a Travis Scott concert to those two examples. What is important to understand is we're talking about 3D simulation, or the technical term is a real-time 3D simulation. Why? Because a Pixar film is a 3D simulation of a 3D virtual world, but it's been produced months or years earlier. And as a result, it's responsive to no input, no perspective. It's immutable. 
These video game worlds are live simulations. What this means is a single frame for which content typically has 24 per second, but games require 60 to 120, must be made in 1 60th or 1 120th of a second. Historically, we did not have the computing power or the technical sophistication to do very complex real-time 3D experiences. Pong, sure. Legend of Zelda, Super Mario Bros., of course we could. But those were basic. The visuals, not great. The number of people who could touch it at once, four in Mario Kart. And that meant that it was constrained to leisure. But over the past decade, all of those constraints have eased enough that we're applying these simulations at global scale. The UK military uses it for training. The U.S. Army has placed a $20 billion decade order with Microsoft for augmented reality hardware and simulations. Airports are using the very technology used to operate Fortnite to operate live an airport. Which gate? When, where, and why? How do we shape the flow of people? This technology has matured way beyond its consumer leisure origination. So I think what happened here is that we started with something we called a game, which in your mind is like, well, I'm just sitting here having a good time, immediately leaps over to simulations, which are trying to make the best uh, setting of all the stoplights around the city, which are trying to figure out how do all the airplanes flow, which are trying to figure out how do we get out of traffic jams and many other real life experiences which today, in fact, are not only simulated, but those simulations guide real-life decisions. That's quite right. And I find that it's important when we talk about the metaverse to extricate that from often how we think about new technologies. We see Facebook, which renamed itself Meta Platforms. They're heavily organized around legless avatars, 3D boardrooms, the Oculus device. And so we can often characterize the metaverse just on that expression. We have to think of the metaverse at the underlying technology. There are individual expressions and hypotheses, some of which endure and some of which don't. But in this instance, what you've keyed up on is the idea of 3D live simulations. And the reason why we think of it almost akin to a modern version of saying the information superhighway, surfing the web, is because all of the best examples today are in gaming. But that's because games have been the only viable economic and technological mainstream application of simulation for decades. But that has rapidly come to an end, or that endures, but the opportunity set has blown to everything. Now, Mark Zuckerberg, in describing Meta Platforms, formerly Facebook, described as you said, Oculus VR, that's virtual reality with a headset of some sort, one presumes, um, AR, augmented reality with glasses, and brain-to-machine interfaces. I mean, this is a whole different way of interfacing and interacting with and experiencing what's going on. And yet we have everyday life. You know, I got to get the dinner on the table. A baby needs changing. I got to order milk. I got to do this. It's like, we. this is not taking over the world in that sense. You're still living your life. That's quite right. In general, we think of 
three different interconnected trends. One is that screens multiply. We used to have one in the household. Now we have dozens. The other is that the distance from our face shrinks. That started with both computers and screens, mainframes. Some of us were thousands of miles from them. And then even those who used them would be 10 feet. Then it became eight feet in the living room, then a few feet with a computer. Now it's inches with your smartphone. The other thing is the ways in which that technology is integrated into the world around you. Think about smart lights, a smart refrigerator, an Alexa device in your living room. We already live in a world where simulations of some sort or interconnected networks are ubiquitous. They are ambient. And so we don't need to think of augmented reality or virtual reality as sucking us away from anything. It's often just a question of how do we access the information around us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Matthew Ball. He's the CEO of Apillion and the former global head of strategy for Amazon Studios. You may have seen his contributions to The New York Times, The Economist, and Bloomberg. He's here today with the metaverse and how it will revolutionize everything. I have to ask you this. You spent several years being the global head of strategy for Amazon Studios. I would imagine this is one high-pressure job. (laughs) What did you do? Uh, What came out of that experience? What did you learn? It was an incredible experience. I joined as one of the first hundred employees at Amazon Studios, which, by the way, at the time operated nearly everything we think of Prime Video to be today. That's the free video service that you receive with your Prime membership. First hundred employees, we were only in four countries at the time. We had less than a billion and a half in estimated spending. Over the following years, we went from four countries to 200 territories, from one and a half billion to several billion in spending. We went from fewer than 100 employees to over 700. But what's fascinating about that is the daunting scale at which we operated, both in terms of reach and time. No one had scaled as quickly as we did. Netflix was actually a lot more staged, partly because they were earlier. In addition, no one had ever said, what if we operate one of the world's two largest content companies in support of a much more complex business, an e-commerce digital infrastructure business. And so navigating that within the context of one of the world's most dynamic and fastest changing companies was extraordinary. When I started there, Amazon was still an e-commerce brand known for shipping shoes and books. We were just starting to shed that. By the time I left, it was one of those most admired companies in the world because it had proven its capability was starting a new business, any new business that it wanted, and often quickly becoming the best in the world. Now, what exactly, when you're saying strategy, you're not talking about precisely, let's do this series or that series. You're talking about what kind of, if I understand this, What kind of experience can we deliver to who globally? Actually, it was both. When I started, we had fewer than 15 series per year. And so there was actually a lot of internal analysis around that. We would go to Jeff Bezos himself and the senior leadership team, the digital leadership team, and discuss whether our instincts, our hypotheses, our early business metrics and customer feedback 
suggested that we should pick up a show, renew a show, cancel a show, expand its budget or its run to more episodes. And we were doing that every two weeks. That continued. I oversaw many of our most significant content investments, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Lord of the Rings negotiation, The Boys, not solely as part of a much broader team. We were highly collaborative. But that was when we had a few series per year in four countries. The real challenge was expanding in a sustainable way into myriad different decisions per week in multiple different territories in contexts that were unfamiliar. India is very different socially in terms of the competitive context, in terms of Amazon's objectives than the United States. And so my job rapidly expanded from the content decisions to what you described as the business did itself. And we're not just talking cultural differences. We're talking about differences in language. We're talking about differences. And I guess it's still culture if we're talking about what is and is not ethical, what is and is not showable, right? That's quite right. There is a preliminary question of localization, where you think of how many languages do you support with dubbing and subtitles? There's another question as to what are your objectives for a given piece of content and how does that vary? Questions of the trade-off between global appeal, regional appeal, and national appeal. And then what you've hit on, which is a problem that no one has really solved yet, which is how do you maintain artistic credibility with local cultural appropriateness, with business objectives, and also the very real concern of politics? Disney, more recently, had an internal debate as to a same-sex kiss in Lightyear, a Pixar film. And they had to make the internal question of, do we edit that out in certain markets, hoping that we get there? Or do we leave it there and leave the individual markets to reject it? And if we're permitted in, do we let the audiences decide? And that really is a new challenge for the West because we're used to operating on stage timelines in specific markets. Now, an entertainment brand is what we call day and date globally. It's everywhere at the same time and going after everyone. And when you translate that then into or imagine that into a global game, we're thinking a global game is almost mass marketed. This is a game. You can be in the game. And there are similar decisions, I would guess, to be made. That's true. Now, one of the nice things with so-called real-time entertainment, as we discussed earlier, is all of the decisions can be made or at least modified in real time, which is to say we actually have the opportunity that many of us wished, which is if you wanted to watch a Marvel movie, but with no swearing at all, not just lighter swearing because it's a Marvel movie, you can do that. You can tune up and tune down the appearance of blood. You can choose that what gamers call a fatality actually looks like a character going to sleep, that a death is instead a departure. Those are actually options. And I'm not saying that hypothetically. Examples of that exist. China in particular has very different perspectives as to how we render, that is to say, present and process decisions in a virtual environment. That has allowed for a lot more local tailoring of the same platform. Now, in the metaverse, you take us through some history. And thank you for your early shout out to Vannevar Bush, 
who we all love many decades ago. You can find out about him anywhere, and you can certainly read about his his prescient contribution uh, to the metaverse in this book. Um, and you also point out that while the, the term metaverse has been around for a number of decades now, you finally get to a definition. It means so many things to so many people. Um, we already know from this interview, we're talking virtual worlds, we're talking 3D, we're talking real-time rendered, uh, something that's relatively new, but but we, under, we can understand it now, is you're talking about interoperative network with respect to virtual content. That means I go onto a game, we'll still call it a game for the time being, and I build my avatar, my, my person or my persons could be a group of people. I build this. The idea that I could take that, those people, those virtual people, and move it into another game, somebody else's game. Interoperability, that's brand new. Interoperability is fascinating, and it gets to how incredible the internet is how much we take for granted its technical achievements and ubiquity, and the big challenge for the metaverse. Interoperability is effectively referring to the ability for autonomous systems or networks or experiences to exchange information coherently, consistently, and comprehensively. You and I recording right now are a great example of this. We're hundreds of miles away, and during that process, we're probably spanning multiple different autonomous networks, probably five. And by autonomous, you mean they just work by themselves? Nobody's operating? No, in this sense, as in that they're individually operated. They're not connected. It's not, not it. it might be different operators. And, and they're all doing it, but we're all in agreement. So somehow our information makes it through back and forth. Correct. And there is a wide network. The internet is actually referring to, in its technical definition, the Internet Protocol Suite. And that's a series of protocols and standards which facilitate the transference of information on the Internet. It's what standardizes. We take for granted, it's incredible that Comcast, AT&T, British Telecom, Telefonica, China Mobile, IBM, and Novartis all use email in exactly the same way to communicate with one another. That's because of standardization of file formats, of conventions, because of the internet protocol suite. We have interoperability across 40,000 different autonomous networks globally. And in terms of virtual characters, the idea that we might be able to move those between these massively multiplayer games, that's a new concept. It's right. And we want to think about interoperability in multiple different avenues. Just taking a virtual avatar is one example. It's easy because we can think of it and visualize it. But we want to think of it on more different levels. Identity, payments, communications, content, your history. History is important. If you actually want to live in a parallel space, you want to learn in a virtual environment and have that go elsewhere. We need these different companies and platforms to understand and receive data from one another. For that to work, you need both conventions on what data looks like, think of your JPEG, but also standards on how to accept it and receive it. The internet works because, if you can believe it, 
we have a group, a standards body, working group of Feather, and they manage the global hierarchy of the internet. That's why the Washington Post knows where the New York Times is on the internet. It's why the Washington Post can link specifically to the third paragraph in an NPR article. That identification system, the ability to then call it, communicate with it, and if you so chose to have an image on Twitter integrated into an NPR article, that's the network of interoperable protocols, technologies, and standards. But none of them exist for 3D yet. This interoperability of character slash capability speaks to me of something very human. The idea that it's not that I'm this person in this game, I'm this person in that game. I can be me as I choose to create me in this space across various spaces. That's very human, you know, especially in this huge world of billions of people times however many. You can be multiple characters. That's quite right. It kind of gets into the Lockean idea of identity, which is defined by continuity of consciousness. And that's why I like to separate from just the visual avatar with other elements of what you own, your identity and your history. Your visuals are an important part of that. It's much the same reason why we imagine ourselves, our essence in our head, not because we know our brain is there, but because our eyes are situated there. And so the avatar is not in and of itself the most important thing for interoperability. It is in fact, probably not the most important thing. But the continuity of experience, the fact that you can go from one environment, education, healthcare, into a hospital owned by someone else, into work, into play, and there's memory, that matters. We go to the doctor, we go to, to health providers, we are educated, we go to work, we do these things. How will this be embodied by those experiences, and why should it be, or why would it be? It's a great question. Let's start with the human element. We evolved for thousands of years to interact in 3D, to touch and to feel the presence of those beside us. We did not evolve to tap glass, to interact with information through a 2D screen. And so there's a fundamental belief that 3D that sense of immersion, whether that's using virtual reality headsets or not, is just fundamentally more natural. And we can see this over time. The internet began as asynchronous. That is to say, it was not live. It was 2D, and in fact, it was text-based. Every year, we progress farther and farther from that towards the world we live in today. It was text, then it was colored text and web pages, then it was social feeds full of rich visual content. Now we're in the era of live streaming where you capture and express your identity through constant streams of photos and images. Our lives are constantly expressed online rather than occasionally encapsulated from a blog post or update. That leads some to believe that not only is 3D a more natural experience, but we can see the trend line. And I wanna start with education. That's for three reasons. First and foremost, education is of critical importance, societally and economically. Number two, 
it has actually resisted digital disruption. We've long been expecting the end of higher education as we conceived it. In fact, we get to the third point. Education has seen the largest cost increases of any category in the United States since the internet came out. It's up 12 to 1400%. Healthcare is bad, but it's 600%. Nothing else comes close. And then we learned during the pandemic that actually digital education, not great. Zoom school is terrible. YouTube videos, not particularly enriching. And so we believe that having rich 3D simulations can achieve some of what we've been lacking. Why? You feel the sense of your teacher there. They exist. They're personified. You can make eye contact. Your peer is beside you. I learned about a volcano using paper mache, baking soda, and vinegar. Now you can build a complex volcano and travel with the magma as it's expelled into the atmosphere. You can do that and then go down into the microscopic level and travel its circulatory system. The magic school bus becomes real, but it also becomes available globally at no cost of delivery to everyone. That's not going to replace teachers, but I'm very hopeful that teachers, one of our most important resources, but one rarely leveraged at the scale of most modern technology, suddenly has far greater reach. Matthew, I have, uh, you can see it here, I have many more questions. We don't have time for them. Um, but please, thank you so much. And you know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Thank you. My guest today is Matthew Ball. His book is The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. It's published by Live Right, a division of W.W. W. Norton. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Anne Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Landcourt.